We're in a series. Oh, no, let me just mention a couple things. First of all, we have the CareNet bottles up here still. If you want to grab a baby bottle, you put change in it, you bring it back. Uh, but also, we're encouraging you now to start bringing them back as we support that ministry. And uh, we'll be turning them over, turning the bottles over to them um, just as they come in as much as possible, just to uh, help them as they help uh, women in very difficult, difficult situations. Also, uh, there is a babysitting night, February the 11th here. Uh, you can come, and uh, we have set up for babysitting. It's just for a donation. If you donate, it goes to our Arizona trip to reach out and minister to the Navajos on the Navajo Reservation, and uh, just whatever. And so we don't want it to be a burden on you, but we'd love to have you be able to get some time, uh, maybe to just, just get away from those darling children. Um, I know that feeling. We're in a series right now on the book of John. Uh, we just finished up looking uh, last week at the Lazarus and the resurrection of Lazarus and, and just a lot of what's going on there. And it, it, uh, it created a reaction. And we're going to look at that here and then kind of springboard off of that reaction and some things that I think are incredibly important for us. And so um, I want to just, just jump right in. And I want, I want us to start with just the first few verses. Uh, verse 45. This is right after uh, Lazarus had been raised from the dead. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, some people went and told the Pharisees about what had happened, right? And, and there, if you read a lot of books or you read things about this, there's some who will say, oh, they ratted them out. They, they ratted Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Jesus out to the Pharisees. But there's another possibility to that, which I think could, could very well be true, and that is this. It could be they, they've been thinking, if you were a person there and you'd been steeped all these years in the fact that the Messiah was coming, and there were things to look for. The Bible's very clear about what to look for uh, when the Messiah comes. And to see one of those things fulfilled before your very eyes, you could be like, well, that settles it. He's the Messiah. The Sanhedrin... The rulers of Israel, they have to know because they should embrace him and his kingdom because this is a new day that's coming. And they should be the ones who lead, who kind of paved the way for him. They should be thrilled that he is the Messiah. This absolutely settles it. You know, it's kind of like when the wise men came to Herod, right, at the birth of Jesus. What did they do? They said, obviously, you want to know that a new king is born. You should be the person who should welcome that new king, right? They totally misinterpreted the kind of person Herod was. But that's what they were thinking, all right? You, you would want to know of this important event. It's huge, so surely you will rejoice in it. I think some of them were thinking that. And then verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, let me just re remind you, the chief priests were Sadducees. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They, they, had, they, they, were, they were very right here, right now. That's all there is to it in that mindset. The Pharisees were the exact opposite. They believed in the resurrection. They believed a resurrection was coming at a final day. They believed that God would raise them from the dead. So these are enemies in most things. And now they're working together. The chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, 
everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come, and they will take away both our temple and our nation. Now, it's interesting, interesting here, in the Greek, the word for accomplishing and the word for performing is the exact same word. It's like they're saying, what are we accomplishing? Look what he's accomplishing. We got to do something. And this reveals, this reveals, you know, everything about them, so much that we know about them. We have to stop him. He's doing miracles. Imagine that. There are miracles being performed. performed. We must stop them. Why? We will lose our place. We will lose our temple. You can imagine the chief priest, we will lose our temple. And the Pharisees saying, we will lose our nation. We're the leaders. If we let, if, and just think about it, if we let him go on like this, the arrogance of that statement, if we let him keep doing this, like we're the ones in charge, not him. We'll lose our temple. That's money, money, money. We'll lose our nation. That's power and standing. This is their overriding concern. Their first thought is not, is God in this? Is this something God's doing? Their first thought is, how will this hurt us? So you see now what they really think is important. You see now what they really believe. This is very key for us to understand. In verse 49, then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, you know nothing at all. So you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Now, we, we looked at this. I showed you a picture of a, a ossuary. They're called, it's a bone box. It's the bones. We know it's the bones of Caiaphas. This Caiaphas, we have where he was buried and, and the box that he was buried in. And so it's this man, and he says, <clears throat> don't you see it's better that one man should die. And it's interesting because he says, it's better for you. It's better for you that one man die. It's very key. We learn a lot about them in this. <clears throat> and he adds, and, and better, you know, the whole nation will perish, which is kind of an exaggeration. Because here's the thing, in those days, and somewhat true even in these days, total warfare was not, you didn't wipe everyone out. Because if you were going to take land, you still needed people to work the land, to grow the crops, because that's how they paid you tribute. And so you wanted to kill as few as possible. And so what they would do, and the Romans did this a number of times, they did this a number of times in Israel. They came in, they put down the people who were fighting, and they removed the people who were in charge, who were supposed to keep those people from fighting. So what they're realizing is, if they start following Jesus, and this creates a war, Rome is going to come in and remove us. Because the Sadducees, who were the chief priests, were appointed by the king. Herod appointed them. And so they're thinking, this will hurt us. That's all they're concerned about. This is something that goes diametrically opposed to what it means to be a Christian. If all we think of is, how will this hurt me? How will this inconvenience me? How will I lose in this situation? Instead of thinking, is God in this? What is God doing? Which is what we should. And this opens a window to their soul. Interesting, Caiaphas, he said, he did not say this, that one man should die for, for, the, for the people. 
He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God. Everywhere, people everywhere, to bring them together and to make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. All right. So the Jews believed this, that whoever was the high priest, occasionally, possibly, it didn't happen all the time, would speak a, a, a prophecy. And Caiaphas unwittingly prophesied. It is better for one man to die for the whole nation, for the whole nation. And so I was, as I was reading this and studying this, one of the things that got me as I started to think about this is what happened to these people? What happened to these Pharisees? They are the most educated. We're pretty sure that for most Pharisees, to be a Pharisee, one of the requirements was you had the whole Old Testament memorized. They could quote just at will. They knew the word. What happened to them? Because we see very clearly what they believe. In spite of knowing, do justice. You know, mercy. Uprightness before God. What are they doing? Grabbing. Taking. Lording over people. So what happened to them? Or I guess maybe... Maybe we could say, what's going on here? What can we learn from this? Because they were, they said they were following God. They believed it. They were working for him. But somehow they got sidetracked. Somehow they got corrupted by money and power and position and authority. They craved all these things. Jesus highlights this all the time. Remember, at times, different times, he'd say things like, don't be like them and pray loudly on the street corner so that everyone can hear your prayers. He says, don't do things to be seen. When they go through the temple at the box where they leave money for the poor, and it's like, clink, 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 showing off how much money they're giving. Jesus said they get nothing for that. He's constantly saying those things. They would say that they were believing in God and following God, and yet often they lived in a way that directly contradicted that statement. And we do the same thing sometimes. I don't want to be a Pharisee. I just don't want to become a Pharisee. And so I want to think about that. What does it mean to believe in God? What does it mean to follow God? And I, I just want to touch on this, and this is something that, I, I, you know, I, I, I love talking about. It. I think it's, it's important for us to know. I read a, a, a guy one time, an author I was reading, he was talking about there's three kinds of conviction in a person's life. And he's talking about actually what we really believe, right? And he says the first thing is there's public conviction. These are the things that I say when I want other people to think certain things about me or to think that I believe, even if, even if I may not really believe what we're talking about, right? We do this a lot. Here's a biblical example of it. And this is what I just mentioned. This is Herod. The, uh, the wise men come to him. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go make a careful search for this child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him too. All right? So what's Herod's true purpose here? To worship the king? No, we know that's not true. You know, it's hard for us to believe that in our day that a politician would bend the truth for ulterior motives. But they did it back then all the time. So crazy back then. They were so primitive, right? Public conviction. We all have these things. These are the things that we want everybody to think about us. They want everybody, we want people to think about us. And we can all struggle with different things. And I've been 
uh, maybe more honest than I should, because occasionally every once in a while you've called me on it. Um, I, I, I have this, this deep desire, I don't know, what, almost a compulsion. I want to be right about things. I really want to be right about things. Now, the, the, the good side of that is, is, is that I, I can study hard and research to make sure that what I'm saying is true. The bad side of that is that I can become very obnoxious and verbose and, and, and just, just drive people crazy with that kind of stuff. And, and I don't want to be that way. But, but I want people to think a certain thing about me. This is the way we are. So that's our, that's our public conviction. It's just what we say. Then there's what I would call, and what he calls, this author calls it a private conviction. This is something that I think I really believe, but it can be kind of fickle, right? For instance, I would tell you this. I would say, I really firmly believe that a marriage, a marriage is, is a man and a woman who have decided to serve each other for the rest of their lives. And so, all things being equal, when you come into the home, the work done in the home should be fairly equal, right? But what, but what really happens? And some of you know where I'm going with this, right? What, what really happens? Well, in reality, I find myself doing way more than my fair share of serving around the house. And I rob my spouse of her opportunity to be a blessing. I got to work on that. That's what happens. My wife's not here today. But I'm afraid she's watching online. <laughs> Honey, it was just a joke, right? Just so you know that. I may not be going home today. Anyways, I believe also this. I believe, see, these are, our, these are the things we say we believe, but they don't always, when things get tough. I say this. I say Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Yes, we go to church. We open our Bibles. It says, man, I believe that. I believe that from the Bible. Or Jesus says, don't be anxious about what you eat or drink or what you wear. Don't be anxious about money. Don't be anxious about your possessions. Trust your Father who's in heaven. And we hear that and we think, I believe that. I believe that. I don't, I don't want to trust. I don't trust in money. Not putting my trust in that, you know, filthy lucre. And then finances get tight. And I have less money. And I find I get anxious and I get stressed. And I start to worry. And it turns out that I believe I don't have to trust in money when I have money. But when money gets short, and let's face it, our idea of money being short, none of us, okay, for me, I'll just wait. I'm not going to starve, right? I'm not going to sleep outside in a tent. I'm in way better shape than probably 75, 80% of the people on the whole planet. But when things get a little shaky, I find out what my real beliefs are. And it's not what I thought. It's not what I thought. Here's a biblical example. Peter, talking to Jesus, declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before this rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically. That word has this idea of is Peter's almost started to yell in Jesus' face, even if I have to die with you, I will never 
disown you. And then, you know, it's like little kids. All the other disciples, yeah, us too, right? We will die with you, Jesus. And then Jesus is getting ready to die. They're all like, oh, it's real. And what does Peter do? He disowns him. In that moment, did Peter believe that he would die for Jesus? Yes, he did. But the problem is circumstances can affect us and change. He didn't feel that way when the heat was on. When he was actually confronted with the fact that he would have to suffer for Jesus, he backed down. He backed down. And so sometimes we think we have convictions, but it turns out they're very fickle. They don't run that deep. And when circumstances change, they can change. Private convictions. Sometimes we think we have them, but circumstances can change them. And I know this is this is tricky, and, 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 and my own feelings at any given moment can affect those kinds of things. And so now we have to get to the third level. There's public. That's just what I say. I hope people will think that about me. There's, there's private. That's what, that's what I believe. I think I believe, but it hasn't been tested by fire yet. And then there's heart convictions. And heart convictions reveal themselves in our daily actions. They're what I would call the TRB, the real Bob. Right? These are the core ideas of the ways that I behave. Quick example, gravity. I believe in gravity. The real Bob, the TRB, believes in it with all his heart. It doesn't take any effort. You know, I don't climb tall ladders and then think, you know, maybe I will. I just test this. Let's just test this out. Right? It doesn't take any effort. It's not heroic in any way. It's part of the real me. My heart belief in gravity and my behavior concerning gravity always line up, always line up. So the public belief is bogus a lot of times. It's the PR about me. The private belief can be fickle. It's the Bob I really hope I am or wish I was. But heart convictions show the real me. You never violate your ideas about the way things are. You never violate your ideas about the way things are. Ever. I don't think there's anybody in this room that ever said, I don't know about this gravity thing. I'm afraid the next time I drop something, it's going to go up. We don't struggle with that. So my true beliefs and my purpose are revealed by my actions, and my, they, never, they never violate the real Bob, the heart convictions. When I was a kid, sometimes we went to a, a major denomination, a church, um, occasionally, we would go like Christmas and Easter, whether we needed it or not. We were going those two dates, maybe occasionally. And, and they would always recite the Apostles' Creed. I don't know if you know, that may be something for, for some people they don't know, but it's Apostles' Creed. I believe, I believe, and it's just a list of beliefs. These are the things that I believe. And it wouldn't be, absurd, it wouldn't be interesting if, if uh, like, there was just a movie about your life, like it was uh, something you might see in the movies where you could be observed 24 hours a day for a year. And then a creed would be written that would express your true beliefs. Because, I mean, let's, mass confession is good for the soul, right? Here we go. How many of you have been involved in any deception, exaggeration, distortion? And let's make it easy. At least once over the last year, raise your hands. Come on, you can do it. Okay, thank you. If you're not raising your hand, you're doing it right now. Right? And I know, I know people at home are like, I can just see people on the couch. This is how I'd be. People on the couch, I'm not raising my hand. It's stupid. 
Why is Bob telling people to raise their hands in public? That's dumb. You should have done it. Okay. So we'd recite a creed. What would happen? There would be a creed written that maybe we would have to recite. It's not the, it's not the Apostles' Creed. It's more like the Sinner's Creed or the, the real Bob Creed. And it would say things like this. I believe that a lie is a bad thing, but it might be necessary for me to avoid trouble and get what I want. I believe that it pays to be nice, to be nicest to people who are wealthy, attractive, smart, athletic, successful, or important. I believe that I have the right to pass judgment on others. I believe that I have the right to gossip about other people. I believe that I, I had better be looking out for number one. And it would just go on with more maybe things that might hit home more. I believe that 15,000 children dying every day from pre- preventable diseases in this world is not worth me risking my affluence for. doesn't bother me that much that it would actually cost me money. Now, we don't recite this, do we? We don't say this. We're good Christians. We know better. But this is, very well could be, the real you. There are beliefs about the way things really are, and we don't violate those beliefs. And this totally messes up the purpose God has for us on this earth. And why I'm here gets all twisted up in these things. And the biblical writers have a word for this. It's a word that is not popular right now. It's called depravity. It is that we have a sin nature. It's not politically correct. But if, we, if someone watches us closely enough, they will see it. They will see arrogance, image management, selfishness. It just leaks out of us because it's at the core. And this is what Paul, this is what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 1. Just read two verses from there. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And, and, and this is the Pharisees, and this is us. And then one day, Along comes this man, Jesus. We've been studying him in the book of John. And what kind of convictions do you think Jesus is most interested in changing? Public? No. Private? No. Heart? Yes. That's it. Heart convictions. He's interested in changing people's core beliefs about the way things really are so that then they would line up with the kingdom of God bringing up there, down here. And we would see that God's presence is now available for everyone on this earth. It's heart convictions. That's why he said things like, by their fruit you will know them. That's why he said, you know, you can't get bad fruit out of a good tree and good fruit out of a bad tree. So when we talk about heart conviction, this stuff doesn't get changed through image management and behavior modification. That's not how that gets changed. What he talked about was believing and faith, and he zeroed in on this. This has to be transformed. Our heart has to be changed. It works from the inside out. It's not outside in. And so Jesus demonstrated this. He appeared. He lived as a man with this new kind of core beliefs. There was perfect congruence between what Jesus said and what Jesus thought 
and what Jesus did. They all lined up. And he believed there was a heavenly father who was always present with him, who always loved him. He believed that in the way I believe in gravity. Jesus always obeyed the Father, but obedience never looked heroic to him. It just made sense. It was just sanity. To not believe that, to not have these things look line up, he was saying, is, is insane. It's crazy. My obedience to the law of gravity does not look heroic to me. It's just sanity. And that's the way of obeying God, living in the reality of God's presence. That's how it looked to Jesus. It was just sanity. It just made sense. And the disciples looked at him and they said, man, you know, I like his life. I wish I could live like that. I like his joy. I like his security, his peace, his boldness. I wish I had that kind of life. And so they tried doing the things that Jesus instructed, and they found something out about his teachings. They actually made sense if you act on them. When they were angry with someone and tried forgiveness, it really worked. When they had things and became generous with them, they learned that generosity was really better than hoarding. And they found that serving someone was better than lording over them. It fit. And Jesus wants to change our core ideas of how things really are. He wants us to enter into living with ideas that are like his ideas about the presence of God. He wants us, you know, I, 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 mentioned this, I grew up in a poker playing home. He wants us to go all in, just shove those chips to the middle of the table and say, that's all I got. I'm all in. Now, the question is, how does our heart, how does our core get changed to look more like this? And really, it's not something that we don't know. We can't do it by ourselves. You know, it's not something we can work up out of our goodness. Only God can do it. We are involved in the process, and the process can be pretty scary at times. This is how it works in a lot of ways. First of all, the obvious thing that we have to get, you know, every, you know, first of all, it involves making a decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Accepting him as your savior. That's the obvious thing. Learning about his word, spending time in the word, spending time thinking, meditating, praying. Those things, those are the basics. And we all know nobody here is going, oh, really? Reading God's word is good for learning about Jesus? Oh, a new insight, right? Nobody's saying that. But then what happens is, to me, the second thing is we begin to risk something. We risk obedience. We risk obedience. I had somebody come up to me. I hope I'm not stepping out, sharing. Somebody come up to me this morning and talk about risking obedience. Taking my time and using it for others knowing I can't get paid back, knowing I'll get nothing in return, risking obedience. And this whole thing of, of, of learning God's word, this is something that we get mixed up a lot of times in the church concerning what we think is maturity. We think that pouring information into someone's mind causes them to mature and change, but not necessarily. The point is it has to be applied. It may change what they say, you know, the public. It may change what they think they believe. But what has to change is the heart. 
And that alone can't do it. The Holy Spirit has to be involved in that. That's the point of the Holy Spirit on this earth is to begin to change us. And then we take those risks. We step out. We obey. We trust. And it can be scary to do it because it often involves things that we might not choose to do if we just wanted to be comfortable. All through John, but especially in the story of Lazarus, Jesus is saying, trust me, wait, because I'm working. Trust me and wait, because I'm working. And this leads me, I have a favorite illustration. I love this illustration. I've used it before, but we've got, a lot, we've got new people probably since the last time I've used it. But um, there's a writer named Henri Nouan, and he, uh, he, he wrote some really cool stuff. But one of the things was he loved the circus, and he would follow. He followed. He lived in Quebec for a long time. He followed a, a, a trapeze troupe in a circus for almost a year. And, and in the trapeze, there's just two people. There's the flyer and the catcher, right? You understand how trapeze works, I hope. The flyers let go, spin around, reach out, and someone catches them. That's it. And so he loved that. You know, he, there's, there's such great spiritual illustration in that because he, he was talking to one of them, and the guy said, yeah, you spin, you stop, you rotation, you reach out, and he said, and then you wait. And he said, every cell in your body is screaming, catch me! while you're hanging in the air like that, and you just wait. And he was saying flyers tend to be small, less than 150 pounds. You don't want a flyer with, a, with an appetite problem. And then the catchers, this flyer, uh, this guy who was talking, um, he was saying, our guy, his name is Joe, and he was saying he, he wears uh, uh, the uh, stuff that pitchers use on their hands, uh, drying powder, in his socks, while he's swinging, because he gets sweaty when he's nervous. And you don't want a catcher with sweaty hands. That's not a good thing either, right? And so he was saying, as a flyer, the, 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 the guy, his name was Rodley, he told Henri Nouan, as a flyer, I must have complete trust in my catcher. The, the public might think I'm the star, but my, my star is Joe. He's my catcher. He has to be there with a split-second precision and grab me out of the air as I come to him out of a long jump and spin. And he says, well, how does this work? And he says, the secret is the flyer does nothing. The catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, I simply stretch out my hands, and I wait. And they tell him, don't reach for him. Let the catcher reach for you. Just wait. And he he said, I call those three moves, spin, stretch, wait. He said, I call it our dance of trust because my whole life is in his hands. And I wait, and then I'm caught. And he says, every time I go, oh, after doing it for years, there are three moves, letting go, waiting, and being caught. And Jesus shows this in his life. Think about this. Lots of letting go. He let go of heaven. He let go of his life. He went to the cross. When he was on the cross, he said, into your hands I come in, my spirit. He let go. He let go. And he waits to get caught. And I have bad news for you. We're called to that same dance. Letting go, waiting, and getting caught. 
When God comes to people, he says, will you let go? God comes to Abraham. Remember Abraham? He says to Abraham, you know, I want you to leave everything you're familiar with. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your home. Get your wife and you go. Where am I going? Just go. And while you're going, I'll begin to show you. So you're just going to have to wait for a while. And God starts to show him. And it's an awesome thing. A rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Jesus loves him, it says. And he says, will you let go? Will you let go of your trapeze? His trapeze was his money. A woman was caught in an adulterous affair, and Jesus said, go, let go and sin no more. And then Jesus looks at us, will you let go? Maybe it's a relationship that you know dishonors God. What do I let go of? Anything that keeps me from God. Let go of a relationship. Let go of an attachment to money. Let go of your, your, your power. End up trying to work at being a servant. Let go of your addiction. Admit it and get help. Let go of that habit. Let go of that grudge. Let go of your ego, your pride, your money, your reputation. Jesus says, let go. And, and now just, just wait. I hate that. I don't know. Does anybody here wait recreationally? Right? I do not like to wait. It's not what I enjoy doing. And Jesus is saying, I want you to wait. Waiting between the time that I've responded to God and yet things are not the way that I want them to be. That waiting. We talked about that with Mary and Martha as they waited for four long days for Jesus. Sure that he could have done something and devastated that he didn't. He says, so wait. Keep trusting. Keep obeying. Keep saying yes. Hold out your hands. There's parts of my life where I just say, I mean, I'm, I'm backed into a corner. And I just say, God, I can't make this happen. I can't make this turn out the way I want it to be. I can't do it. I'll wait. I'll just wait. Because I don't have control. Because the fire can do nothing. They just get caught. God says to Abraham, you're going to have a son. Now wait. And remember how that went? I mean, if you're in any way familiar with that story, Abraham is celebrated as one of the heroes of the faith until you read his life. And then you go, wait, what? He comes up to a king. He knows his wife is beautiful. So he tells her, tell him you're my sister so I don't get in trouble. So the king takes her to be his wife? I mean, that's husband of the year stuff right there, right? Can't believe that, that he'd do that. God says, wait, you're going to have a baby. Wait and trust. What happens? Sarah laughs. <laughs> She's like, yeah, right. Has he looked at us? He's not a great waiter. That's all. And then, and then what happens? She said, I don't think it's going to happen. Take my, take my handmaiden. And, you know, of course, Abraham, that man of faith, says, oh, no, Sarah. I could never do that to you have sex with another woman just so that I can have a little boy for me to make God's plan come true? No, that's wrong. Say no more, right? Does he say that? Nope. This is husband of the year stuff. He's like, 
oh, that sounds like a good idea. And so he has sex with his, with, with his handmaiden and has another, and it just creates problems, and they just keep waiting. And they just, and finally, you know, I love the part where Sarah, uh, Sarah laughs and God confronts her and he says, why did you laugh? And she goes, I didn't laugh. It's really funny if you read that. It's like, if you got little kids, you see your little kids in that. I didn't laugh, honest, you know. There's laughter all over your face. Oh, <laughs> sorry, right? And then what happens? Can you, I mean, you put yourself in there. Remember, just think, the day she realized she was pregnant. Oh, my goodness. She laughs. Can you imagine it? She tells him, and they laugh. They have a son. You know what they named him? Isaac. You know what Isaac means? He laughs. They named their son Laughter. And Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Why will they laugh? Because there's a baby being born in the neonatal unit, and Medicare is paying for it. Think about that. She goes to the grocery store. She buys Pampers and Depends at the same time. Oh, I got a lot of these. (laughs) I can just keep going, you know, buying Gerber's baby food because none of them have a tooth, right? They laughed. They laughed because they waited so badly. They misbehaved. They deceived. They doubted the whole time. And God still caught them. In spite of all that, God got them. And so they laugh for the sheer joy of it. And God laughs too. That's what the catcher does. You wait. You let go. You wait. And then you get caught. The flyer doesn't do anything. And God is saying, possibly, to some of you here, you need to let go of that. You need to let go. I don't know what it is. It may be a behavior. It may be a habit. It may be whatever trapeze you're hanging on to desperately right now. And God says, will you trust me? Will you let go? Will you obey? Some of you, that needs to happen. Some of you, right now, you're waiting. It's hard. And it causes you sometimes to worry and to doubt and to wonder, where's God? Because you're just waiting. And we all have a trapeze that we hold on to. Our security, our okayness, our success, our importance, our worth, our stuff, our bodies, our health, our influence, and we hold on tight. We spend a lot to hold on, and Jesus comes and says, all right, you can let go of that now. You can let go of your life because there's someone else who wants to hold on to it. You can die to all those things that have keep you from living in my kingdom. And when you do that, you'll find that those things that you died to really don't matter. Let go. Let go of the darkness that's in your light. Let go of the selfishness. Let go of the depravity. And every time that you let go of something, maybe a little thing, maybe a big thing, you you let go and you're caught and your heart will be changed a little bit. You will begin to be transformed from the inside out with every little step you take of letting go and waiting and being caught. Now, one of the things that can happen when we talk about something like this is because we can become very aware of our shortcomings, right? And we have a God 
who with Abraham and Sarah, he finished, he fulfilled his word in spite of their shortcomings. He didn't cancel the deal because they disbelieved and they tried another, they tried to do an end run and they tried this and they tried that. He didn't. He followed through. God will do that with you. It's easy at a point like this sometimes to go, man, I'm so bad, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. And I think about, I read, uh, Tim Keller wrote about this. When the Israelites were going through the Red Sea, right? When, when God caused the Red Sea to part, have you ever thought about what you would have been like in that moment? The greatest army in the world is behind you. And they start coming. And you're walking through. And, and one of the things he was saying was, some people have great faith. And they're walking through like, yes, oh, shark, cool. Cool. Pharaoh. Yeah, buddy. You know, they're just like in your face because God's got us. Right? And there's some people going, oh, you know, some people are Eeyore. We're all Eeyore. We're all going to die. A shark's going to eat me. One guy's dancing for the shark and the other guy's worried it's going to eat him. And they just walk through like, this is it. Oh, here come figures. Pharaoh's going to kill us too. You know, and if he doesn't kill me, I'll drown. And, and they, but here's the thing. They all made it. They all made it to the other side. And I think one of the great things that we can learn from that, it's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. That's why Jesus said even a mustard seed, the tiniest bit of belief, is so powerful when it is given to God. And so this isn't a time to think, oh, maybe I'm not a Christian. No, this is a time to celebrate. We have a God who pursues us. We have a God who says, I will fulfill my word in your life, and he has given you promises. In Hebrews, he said Jesus is the author, the beginner, and the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. He's promised us that. And so I don't have to wallow in self-despair. and I don't have to wallow in in, in self-hatred. I have a God who works even when I screw up. And, And the funny thing is, it doesn't make me go, well, then I can just screw up all I want. That'll be great. No, it makes me go, what a great God. I don't want to screw up. It makes us want to serve. And so what happens? We, we begin to learn more about God. We begin to take tiny steps, sometimes big steps of faith. Maybe it's little, little acts of service. Maybe it's little things. But each one, each one is a fruit. And that begins to change us from the inside out. And then, as you get older, you think about it. And then, one day, one day you're, It's going to be the end. And you're going to breathe your last breath and your eyes are going to close. And God's going to go, gotcha. I got you. Now, enter in to what I've prepared for you since the foundations of time. Because we have a catcher whose hands aren't sweating. And he he loves us more than anything else. Let's pray. Father, your word, your word teaches us. We see illustrations 
of your word and the principles all over, all around us throughout this world. Lord, help us to be willing to do the hard part, the scary part, that is to take those small steps, take those steps of entering into service, doing things that maybe make us uncomfortable, doing things that may take away uh, some of the comfort we have in our money or our possessions or whatever. Lord, that we would be people who would be willing to sacrifice for a cause that could last for eternity. Father, for each one of us, what you call us to do in that area is different. It's an individual thing between us and you. But Lord, help me to be found faithful and help us to be found faithful so that we would, Lord, change bit by bit from the inside out, change that is permanent and eternal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.